What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and today we've got everyone, and by everyone, I mean Pete McKenzie, hey, yeah. Gabby Magnuson, What's up? Kiara Mitchell, oh. and um, Jake something, Dello. Great. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> so... A few quick hits. One is that the American think tank, the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, it used to be it's rapidly going down the MAGA rabbit hole, kind of like a free market capitalism neocon think tank originally. But then neocons all became never Trumpers. And so it was at the beginning of the Trump era, it was staunchly opposed to Trump, all things Trump. But now it's like getting on board in weird hawkish ways and steering Trump toward his more militarist instincts. It's all very, I don't know, shameful. But they had a guy who works there write an op-ed where he said that Taiwan should be allowed to go nuclear, which is, of course, fucking batshit crazy. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. And the reasoning is that it would be a way of pushing back on Xi Jinping's aggression. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't fucking get the logic of that. It, it's risk, high, <laughs> high risks of preventive war because China is not going to let that happen, obviously. So very destabilizing. And this is the kind of thing I just brought it up one, because like, I haven't heard somebody make this argument so aggressively, um, ever. It's a reminder to me that we like live in an age where crackpot arguments actually do get airtime. In some ways they get the most airtime. And uh, it's disconcerting because, like, it, it allows idiots to coalesce around ideas like giving Taiwan nukes. It's like poking the bear to stop it biting you, right? Yeah. Well, it's just like peak fuck you diplomacy, right? Like, we hate Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping would hate Taiwan having nukes. So let's make sure that Taiwan has nukes. Yes. With it's no appreciation of the strategic <laughs> insanity of that. The strategy is fuck you. There used to be this thing at the beginning of the Trump administration where it was America bitch was the strategy, like America bitch. That was the response to like, <laughs> what's your reasoning for this series of decisions? It was America bitch. That's what this is, but like just kind of, you know, next level. So it's, it's 
What's your strategy? Fuck you. That's our strategy. That's what this is. Very disconcerting. In less disconcerting news, but also not not a big relief. North Korea, my neck of the woods again. Kim Jong-un chaired another meeting of the Central Military Commission, and this is the body that communicates kind of like policy guidance from the party to the military. And he declared in a like a press a propaganda press statement that he is suspending military actions that were planned against South Korea after uh, having blown up the inter-Korean liaison office uh, a week or two ago. So they had promised a series of actions against the South that were going to be aggressive. Nobody really knew what specifically that was. We just knew it was going to be offensive. And now Kim Jong-un advertises publicly to an external audience in an English press statement that he is putting the brakes on the military's um, actions against the South. It didn't really say why. Uh, and of course, this is much better than actually them going forward with military adventurism. But the reason why I am not you know, reassured by this is that in August 2017, when we were just starting to get hot and heavy in the nuclear crisis, the military threatened to envelope Guam with bracket-fired missile launches. So they were going to shoot missiles at Guam and then purposely have them just barely miss either side of Guam, which is like, there's a nuclear bomber base in Guam, and how are we going to know that it's just going to barely miss? It's going to look like it's coming right at them. So it was like, it, it was, if they would have done it, it very would have likely created war. And at that moment, Kim Jong-un stepped in and issued a public statement saying that we're going to hold off on that decision for now. We're going to step down. And everybody took that as like a, a great sign. Yet the crisis got way worse in the months after that move. And so one of the reasons I'm like pretty concerned about all this right now is that the reason shit escalated in 2017 after Kim Jong-un stepped in and showed restraint was because his restraint was not met in kind. There was there was no positive tit for tat. So like if his if his signal of like uh, restraint goes unreciprocated, then what recourse does he have except to go to plan B or like go to the harder options, right? So unless you think Trump is going to reciprocate, that we're we're still not out of the woods of uh, danger. Yeah, I was just about to ask that. Has Trump claimed this as a victory yet? He's or... still not talking about it, and I think it's because there's nothing good to say about it at this point. What, are they just going to keep ignoring things until it just escalates to a point? Yes, but like what's weirdly, I also think that ignoring things is the best option that the Trump administration is capable of. It's, it's like a very bad option because everything is getting worse. And the situation is tightening and it's we're, right. we're we're losing maneuvering space. We're losing choice. The bargaining situation is becoming more and more unfavorable to us as time goes by. But the administration is so incompetent and they're so instinctively hawkish and militarist that any decisions that they try to make on North Korea, any moves that they try to do are going to get fucked up. And there's too much room for like risk and accidents. So like. Doing nothing is a pretty bad option, but when you're dealing with an incompetent set of, of statesmen, statespeople, it, you know, n nothing might be like the best thing that we can hope for for the next, you know, six months, nine months. I don't know. And then finally, the uh, European Union 
said that it's ready to bar American travelers when it reopens its borders on July 1st (laughs) because of said U.S. government incompetence, right? And I don't blame them. Like, I don't, Americans as, as, as carriers of pathogens are toxic right now. You know, like it's a whole country awash in bad public policy and exposure. And so like letting in Americans anywhere is is risky uh, if you don't have like good protocols in place for quarantine or whatever. But I also feel like there's something more going on here, like the EU kind of distancing itself from the United States. I cannot imagine them making some kind of announcement like this in any other era, you know. I feel Trump, well, not Trump specifically, but the United States lost a lot of international credibility with the pandemic when they, when the president held a rally in the middle of the said pandemic, you know, like it's almost a write-off from that moment because what possibly could they be doing if yeah. they're holding rallies? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's depressing. Um, one of my buddies pointed out that uh, at a mount that the world is starting to defend themselves against America while America still thinks it's defending the free world, uh, which is pretty harsh, harsh, but not untrue in some ways. It's politically easy to do. It's uniquely politically easy to do uh, as compared to any other previous point in time. I think even, even in like the depths of bad unilateralism on Iraq in 2003, we were never, we were never quite this in this bad shape um, in terms of public relations. I often like hear a lot of people like shitting on the United States and a lot, but it's actually quite tragic because I was thinking the other day, the majority of people don't want this, you know, like this isn't the majority and these people are suffering because shit, if we think this is insane, imagine living there. Yeah. Imagine living under this. Yeah. No, actually, we're going to talk about that more in armchair analysis, I think. If this was something that the EU actually does push forward with, is there going to be any sort of retaliation from the U.S. Like well, quite so there hard are, against there it? There are or? already tariffs in place, or uh, Trump is already looking at imposing new tariffs on the EU. And wow, okay. presumably that will go forward. But like, no, the, both the EU and the United States are not acting as if they are in a rivalry with each other. But if you don't mm-hmm. know the backstory and you just look at what's happening, it looks a little tit for tatty. Like it looks like there's action and counteraction going on. Uh, and right. so it's just it's a more complicated dynamic, I guess. But I would expect retaliation to happen kind of indirectly. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's worth noting that it's it goes beyond tit for tat as well i mean there's been instances over the entirety of trump's term where he's hypothesized or or, or floated putting additional tariffs on europe or withdrawing from nato or doing all sorts of things which would promoting destroy the relationship between america and and europe and he's done that without provocation so that that kind of crucial causation element of the diplomatic relationship where you have that tit for tat has vanished and so there's no downside for european leaders doing something that might spike the u.s european relationship because they can expect that even if they hadn't done that there would have been some insane act from trump anyway no that's right brave new world let's do prediction market where we get vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them
All right, for prediction market this week, question one, will any current ASEAN members officially give relief to Myanmar following the refugee crisis before August? So when he says ASEAN, he means ASEAN uh, Association ASEAN. of oh. Southeast Asian <laughs> Nations. I'm sure that's the right way to pronounce it in, in New Zealand. I just know that like Americans might hear like ASEAN, like what is that? Um, no, I am aware of my accent. I'm aware that no, it's probably ineligible, ineligible to some. It's all good. I'm genuinely not throwing shade. So this is actually a test. So Myanmar has always been kind of a test or the, like the hard test in some ways for ASEAN because it's it's this great regional institution that uh, a number of scholars and practitioners like to point to and become cheerleaders for ASEAN as like a source of peace, as a, you know, a, a very like a bulwark of stability in the region. But they don't have rule enforcement capacity. They make decisions by consensus only, which means everybody gets a veto, which means it's very mm -hmm. hard to do anything that is sensitive or particularly contentious. Um, and of course, anything that's important usually is sensitive or contentious. And um, when they, they, and they've gradually expanded, the one thing that is true about ASEAN is that members of ASEAN have never fought each other while they are members of ASEAN. There are other explanations for that, like more than ASEAN itself, but that's a notable thing to kind of observe. And then ASEAN members before they were ASEAN members did fight each other quite a lot. And, but as they've expanded from five members to 10, they were taking on greater risk to that reputation uh, of stability because the later members to join, um, not only were they uh, dictatorships, but they had like, I mean, Burma, Myanmar in particular, has like serious yeah. human rights violation issues, like ethnic cleansing problems. Genocide issues. Yes. Huge fucking problem. And it's basically a military junta with a democratically yep. elected woman on top who was held in Still, prison forever. Yeah. yeah. Huge, fu huge fucking problems, man. And so a test of ASEAN is like whether they will actually do anything to restrain Myanmar's uh, basically violence against civil society, restrain its authoritarianism. Um, and then the positive way to frame that would be like, do things to take care of those who would flee Myanmar because of persecution. So political refugees, right? And so it's a, this question is a good question. It's a big question. Will ASEAN members give uh, refuge to refugees from Myanmar before August. I don't think so, man. And that's yeah, disappointing, yeah. but it's also against the backdrop of the pandemic. So that's sort of why it became a hot button issue in regards because this <laughs> this has been happening for years. Yeah, like this isn't new. And um, but the pandemic just sort of throws another curveball into the ring. Question two: Will Trump officially meet with Nicolas Maduro before August? That's the Venezuelan dictator. In case people. Yeah. So I'm going to say no, but not because he doesn't love dictators. It's because he does. Yeah. Uh, it's just because uh, he's he's busy fighting, chasing shadows and Joe Biden conspiracy theories. Yeah, that question came along because it was a uh, news story. I should have linked it, but I didn't uh, yesterday for some reason. Um, that Trump was keen to meet with Maduro and he still did not recognize uh, Maduro's democratically elected counterpart. Classic. So it's like his love for dictators shows no bounds. Yeah. It? And there were going to be three questions today, but I'm, I'm, 
I actually agree with Van on this one. Um, I've had a read of the story, and it was very late at night. It's something about the CCP occupying some land in Nepal, and it's by a publication called Tribune India. And they have a bit of issues going on at the moment, so I don't know if it's bipartisan or not. So I, I do not know. I, I hadn't heard of this elsewhere, that, that China had occupied some Nepalese land recently. Mm. The, this might well have happened. If it did, I would not be surprised. I just have not seen this anywhere else. So I, it's a little hard to weigh in because I don't know if it's actually true. Yeah. So, all right. All right. Uh, this is, make this a teaser. I'll find out whether it's true and get some complete sources, and then we'll ask it next week, and it'll be a great question. Boom. Question three. Van, will you admit that you're a Marxist before August of this year? <laughs> I believe I'm on the record saying I'm not a Marxist. Well, uh, uh, only, only 12 times, Van. 13th is the magic number. There we go. Maybe I'm in denial. Actually, you know what? I'm fucking... The, <laughs> I drove a a new car this week. It's a long story. Um, I've driven a new car basically never, like occasionally on like a you know a business trip or something when I have a rental car. It is the most. I'm not a car guy. It is the most like velvety, luxurious, bougie experience. <laughs> like the first time I went to a luxury hotel and I was like, oh my god, this is how people live. Like this is this is you can live like this. It was so seductive, man. So it's it, just like third eye with the bourgeoisie guy. Well, I was gonna <laughs> say like this. You experience that level of like pristine living, and you're like, "Fuck, I gotta have this." You will renounce <laughs> renounce Marxism on the spot. It's so. <laughs> it's no longer about nobody deserves to be millionaires. It's like, man, how do we expand the pie? We got to get more people in on this, like that. <laughs> well, well, jokes on you, Marxists don't get licenses, so I can't drive. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds more anarchical than anything. <laughs> Time for sale Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter, so that you don't have to. Okay, so for Stay Off Twitter this week, uh, I've got two. One is a response to a tweet by or slash article by The Intercept. And The Intercept does amazingly deep investigative journalism. They have uh, a left bias, and it's not just a normal left bias as in left liberal or even left social uh, democratic socialist or orthodox Marxist. It's left libertarian, like left slash not left. The Glenn, the Glenn Greenwalds, you know, what's that guy who dumped all the secrets and ended up in Russia? Edward Snowden. Um, Snowden. <laughs> it's, it's that brand of left where it's like, uh, what is, is this really? Is, this, is Ayn Rand on the left? I don't know. Um, oh, no, fuck the fucking answer is no. And so, <laughs> Jake so immediately. Um, so the intercept is like, the, a lot of what they do is amazingly good. Some of it has a slant to it, right? Um, and it's not, they, they're known for courting controversy. So Glenn Greenwald, himself very controversial, and I don't consider him to be of the left, frankly. He wrote for them saying, should the populist left work with the populist right where they have common ground or not, right? Man, I want to talk about this more at some later date. But um, yeah. a buddy of mine, Yakov Fagan, 
who is at the Berggren Institute, which is like about the future of capitalism, political economy, future of capitalism in a critical way, like making it more equal. He's a Warren, a Warren person. All he says to this intercept thing about should the populist left work with the populist right? He goes, mask way off. And what he's referring to is the mask that some people on the left wear when they're actually not on the left, which is that they don't care about anything that is part of the leftist agenda. They're trying to just burn it all down. There's like a kind of diversity of who anarchists yeah. are. Um, yeah, there is. And yeah, not all anarchists belong on the left. No. And the, but they will claim to be representing the left or left interests when it serves them. It's, it really is the like Glenn Greenwald types who are like of this mind, I think. And so Jakob Fagan is calling it out because it is, I mean, with three words, mask way off. But he's like, they're revealing themselves to be who they always were, which is basically some sort of ally of the fucking MAGA people. As if populists on the left, as if populism on the left meant what populism on the right means. Totally different definition. It's incredibly disingenuous. Yeah. To state, yeah. It's incredibly disingenuous. It's actually a bit offensive because there are subsets of anarchists that just want to tear shit down. But, and I often get asked all the time, like, don't you just want to tear all hierarchies? It's like, no, not necessarily. Just unjustifiable ones. This is the core of everything that is left from every reasonable, real definition that I've seen. Like, there is a plurality of thought on the left. There are different views that are legitimate and still count as being left. So I'm not trying to say it's like any one way. At the core of all of them is a prioritization of reducing inequality, different methods, different approaches, but the, the, the presence of inequality in the world is a fundamental problem that needs to be redressed, right? And uh, this notion of like populist left working with the populist right is not motivated by inequality. It's motivated by like burn it all down. So the shortest tweet ever for this show, but I, I feel like it hit something important. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad yeah, we're on yeah. the same side of this, Jake. Oh, hey, <laughs> All right. Second tweet, friend of the pod, Dan Nexon, professor at Georgetown, godfather of progressive foreign policy. He says uh, it's just a then and now thing. And he goes, then we need our ginormous military budgets to deter potential great power challengers. Now we need our ginormous military budgets because of great power challengers. <laughs> Rinse and repeat. So, 30 years ago, like the end of the Cold War, the rationale for pursuing military superiority was that we need to make sure nobody ever aspires to balancing us. We want to stop balancing before it starts, right? Um, and then 20 years later, states are catching up to us. Um, our relative power is in decline. And we're still saying we need military superiority, but now we're saying we need it because uh, others have risen to challenge us, which is to say that military, the, the premise of military superiority failed from yeah. 30 years ago. And yet we're still we've invented a new reason, but it's the same argument that we're making. It's the same position that we're taking. And so at that point, you have to really be cynical, skeptical about the merits or the genuineness of sincerity of people making arguments in favor of military power. So shout out to Dan for, I don't know, cluing us in truth to power. 
Cool. So my only tweet for the week comes from Weijia Zheng, who I've mentioned a couple of times before. Um, but just as a reminder, she's the CBS News correspondent to the White House. So the tweet I picked up for the week reads, Just now, I asked the president if he was kidding when he said he told his people to slow down testing, which is how White House officials explained the comment. He said, I don't kid. He also said again, testing is a double-edged sword and praised the job the U.S. has done. And then in the following tweet that, uh, sorry, in the same thread, she goes, update, press secretary told reporters aboard Air Force One that the president was using sarcasm in his original comment about slowing down testing during his rally, even though that's not what he said this morning. And I feel like this is something we've seen multiple times, but I decided to just flag it anyway for the week because I just want to know your thoughts on this, man. Yeah, I mean, it's it's capturing something that's kind of evergreen with this era, which is that like all of Trump's supporters take the position that he's fucking around when they don't want to defend what he said. But then Trump is even Trump tells jokes, but he's serious about everything he's saying. Yeah. yeah. 100% of the time. <laughs> and so, like, you go back to him for clarification and he doubles down because he's serious every time. So it's like the Republicans have this bizarro strategy of being like, oh, he was just joking, except every single time he proves that he's not. So, like, why is they why are they still using this strategy? Fuck. Yeah. So good. I feel like good tweet. Yeah. I feel like there's something to be said about, like, there's no harm in joking about it, but I feel like in his position, with certain in certain situations when there's like a lot of gravity to it like i feel like joking isn't appropriate for it it's fine for a comedian to joke about this it's not fine for the fucking president of the united states to joke about this which is to say i agree with you yeah (laughs) (laughs) and for my input to stay on twitter this week um it might sort of show what my Twitter feed is like, but this one is for a prominent intellectual called Stormy Daniels. <laughs> and, and you'd be right. <laughs> told you all he exaggerates the size of things. Boom. <laughs> yeah. And that was after TikTok officially sabotaged Trump's campaign and, ma- and caused the greatest picture of Trump to ever be taken. That one where he's looking like he just like got told no by his mum. I meant to talk about this, but I there's too much going on. The fucking a combination of like millennials, Zoomers, I hate that term, uh, Gen Z, <laughs> basically everybody but boomers got together and uh, TikTok was like a major platform for this, but coordinated purchase of tickets to a Trump rally and made Trump um, campaigners, planners think that they were going to have this ginormous rally and then Trump shows up to what he thought was a sold out stadium and there was only 6,000 people there because they purposely <laughs> ghosted. It was all a big <laughs> fuck you prank. Yeah. And it's like, why don't we do more of this? Wait, that is smart. That is taking it to the enemy. That it shows strategy, creativity. Like, where is, where is, we need more of that. It hit him where it hurts. Yes. That's the key. It hit him, it hit him right in his pride. Yeah. Like a child. Yeah. And that's the best part because he, he doesn't care if you call him a fascist or an idiot, but he cares when no one's screaming his name. That's right. I think this is a way that especially because I think a lot of the TikTokers and because uh, I also know it was like um, K-pop fan cams, I think, were part of the yeah. thing as well. Mm. So between the two of them, I think it's a lot of teenagers who can't actually vote or do anything or they're like outside the States and they want to do something. So it was like this big movement, which I find is so funny. Just yeah. to block everything up. 
it's huge. What's the only reason I didn't credit it solely to Gen Z was because the person who organized it was this 51 year old woman who was a volunteer oh, for the Buttigieg <laughs> campaign. That is a very unlikely person to like come up with this kind <laughs> of thing. But the important thing was that she actually mobilized the people who don't fucking vote, which is like, no offense, yeah. your guys's age, Brad bracket, you yeah. know, good. huge power. She's good. Nice. Yeah. The hashtag Buttigieg resistance. Yeah. Strike again. <laughs> I can't wait for them to claim this was a conspiracy. I can't wait. <laughs> Well, you go if you look at the hashtag Buttigieg resistance, the old ones are probably like by people like Jake. <laughs> <laughs> and then the new ones will be like, oh, the Buttigieg people fighting Trump. Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. Okay, so for Armchair this week, we've got a piece in The Atlantic by Tom McTaggart. I think that's how you pronounce his last name, um, called the decline, of, the decline of the American World. And in this article, Tom focuses on a, a whole host of different themes from kind of American cultural dominance to how the world is reflected in America and sees its own weaknesses in it, that kind of thing. But I, I think more important for our purposes is the way that he analyzes kind of pity and American decline. He... he at one point in the kind of introduction to the article, he writes that as citizens of the world the United States created, we're accustomed to listening to those who loathe America or admire America and fear America, sometimes all at the same time. But feeling pity for America, that one is new. And he writes that because whatever moral or strategic challenge America faced, he thinks there was always the sense that it could politically regenerate, that it had a system, it had a democratic culture that allowed rebuilding and reimagining of itself. And yet facing an emerging China, a more chaotic world, a deeply partisan domestic scene, these kinds of deep economic and racial divides and a leadership which is uh, incapable, uh, to put it politely, he doesn't think that regeneration is guaranteed. He quotes one scholar who he spoke to who wrote, uh, who said that the Netherlands were the dominant global power in the 18th century. And today they're a successful country, but they've simply lost their power. To some extent, the UK and France are on the journey to become the Netherlands, and the US is on the journey to become Britain and France. And I think that was a really interesting and insightful way of understanding this kind of shift in global power and the potential decline of the American world. It's not certain that that's what will happen. America still exerts this kind of remarkable cultural and strategic dominance. But for the first time in a century, that decline is really possible to become a mid-level world power as opposed to the singular world power. And I was, I was curious to get your take on it, Ben. Yeah, so I thought this was like a beautifully written piece it read a little bit mournful or sorrowfully and that, that that's probably appropriate. The whole angle you, you hinted at it, the, the angle that he took when he was writing was to explicitly soak and poke interview a bunch of European union kind of um, policy elites plus Tony Blair mm. um, and some Blair <laughs> acolytes for, for some reason, Tony Blair yeah. is like the only guy he names. I think he names like one yeah, other person. Really. He's like, I interviewed dozens of people, including Tony Blair. 
And <laughs> don't, know, don't know why you'd be proud yeah, of it. I know. Make it, make it I guess I guess Tony Blair is just an easy quote at this stage, eh? Yeah, he's like, "Oh, you're giving me some good stuff. I'm gonna have to use you." Actually, like it's it's a it's a useful totem or like reference point for or it's in symbolic terms to be citing Tony Blair like this because he is emblematic mm. of this perspective that the guy is is channeling and that a lot of Europeans mm. when they think about America are like channeling too. There's a countervailing view too, but the overwhelming view I see I'm not super dialed into Europe, but like in Asia, in New Zealand, in Australia, there's very much this Tony Blair kind of mindset. Like it's a liberal policy elite, liberal small L mindset. It's horrible. Where it's like the world is always the best of all possible worlds. America's always going to, what has been is what will continue to be only better. America is on the outs, is in decline now, but we've said that about America three, four times before. In, in our history, there's never been anybody like Trump, you know? And the belief among the Tony Blair set is that Trump is, is a, a one-off or unique. And like I talked about this with Matt Duss, one of Matt's major talking points uh, on every show that he goes on is that like, look, the fundamental mistake that establishment thinkers make is that Trump is an anomaly. He is a symptom of a broken system, right? Yeah. America's politics yeah. are completely fucking broken. American society is fractured. And it just so happens to be that American um, culture and Americana and soft power is global and it is entrenched and American, a certain kind of American identity, the one that is like appeals to our better angels, that is a reference point for a lot of people all around the world. And mm. whether, you know, like America always has its share of critics. I work with faculty who are like basically anti-American, some, like some of them. Yeah. Some of them are very pro-American. But like there is always going to be those critics, but there is also like a huge number of people who still look to America as like in an, in an idealist kind of light. And there are a number of Americans, particularly in the policy world, who are always going to try to represent that like to their dying day. Like I, I basically also want to represent that to my dying day, but I don't know that we will win the day. And I don't see any reason for optimism. I, I'm very concerned. I, this Panglossian fucking optimist liberal stuff, it annoys the shit out of me. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where to go with that. That was <laughs> incredibly great. Yeah, I was pretty great. I was like, that's it. All right. I, I think it is really worth, I think it's really worth reading the piece because I think Ben's right that just the mournfulness of it is really quite moving. I mean, to, to finish off this, this segment, the the decline of the American empire into a newly multipolar world, at least in the way that um, Tom McTayu is explaining it, wouldn't necessarily be catastrophic. It would, it would involve like a, a huge shift and would, you know, that would spark conflicts, but it would be incredibly destabilizing. And I think it's just really important to grapple with the possibility of that, the fact that that is nearer and closer to us than we think and that you have to really start thinking about what you do next if that starts to come to pass. Yes. So one of the things he said in there um, that I forgot about was, like, he was quoting somebody, and he said, the historical moment is pregnant, and we all know it, 
but nobody knows with what, right? Mm -hmm. It's that everybody knows we're on the cusp of like epochal change and we just don't know what. And I, I feel like that actually is a view that justifies paralysis. And like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I even agree with it. I agree Mm -hmm. that a lot of people believe that, but I think that it's because they believe it because they don't want to face the reality that we are looking at some serious long-term trends that are unreversible. They're fucked and they cannot get unfucked, which is like the extreme polarization of America, a deeply corrupt system what has become a functional oligarchy, basically. And Obama was doing something to try and like rescue that a little bit or steer it away from oligarchy or make it like more democratically manageable, but like tinkering on the edges of the system while the system is basically is what it is. And that is entrenched now and it's long term. Trump has hundreds of judges that he's appointed Right. Gerrymandering preserves Republican districts long after the people who live in those districts are disgusted by the GOP and by Trumpism. You know, like this is and this is part of the larger tapestry of injustice that includes racism and extreme inequality. Like it's all one big thing. It's all connected. And that's not going away. And the fact if, if Biden wins and I hope he wins. All it's going to do is relieve a little bit of the pressure from these current movements that are just clamoring for change. And we'll probably get some change out of it, but not enough. It'll be like it'll be something less than the Obama thing where it's like he comes in. He's trying to tinker around the margins of oligarchy rather than fix it. And it's going to be something like that is my fear. But that is better than what we have in the Trump era. It's just that that is not a reversion to what we had before. That is a downward cycle that's going to keep going and going. And I think that people believe the moment is pregnant with uncertainty because they don't want to face what the actual certainty is, which is bleak as fuck. Partly because, like, what options do you have in that world? Like, we haven't figured it out yet, you know? Well, Ben, I'm curious. How do you square that with the revolution will be technocratic, you know, idea that we that we go on that we've talked about previously well so part of there's because there's multiple games happening if you if you want to make change there are ways that you can make it within the existing paradigm by competent policymakers, competent insiders who know the shibboleths and the rules of the game but who have a mindset that's different who have an agenda or set of principles that's different and they work within the game to either to both make marginal improvements so like the Obama tinkering thing, right? But also to be a foothold for outsiders, a foothold for novelty in the in the realm of mm. ideas. We've never really had the inside-outside game going at the same time. And the outside game matters. The outside game is the only thing that the left really knows how to do. But it's like you show up in the streets, you're like, I can't breathe. You're opposed to the Iraq war. I feel all that stuff. But the protests themselves become a way of like relieving the pressure for change. Too yeah, many people yeah. in Washington see that and they're like, oh, they're exercising their democratic imperative. And then like they don't feel so compelled to actually change anything, you know. And so like the Iraq war happens anyway. But when you can combine the yeah. outside pressure with inside elites, maybe something is possible that wasn't possible before. 
basically it's like my, that's my wager my wager is that if you play an inside outside game you have your best chance to promote actual justice and equality kind of change actually being to me being more like moral and more strategic is it goes in the same direction but yeah. it's it's very much a wager because it's never happened before and like the matt dust interview i did like we talk about this there is no technocratic base or farm team or elite for the left, for Democrats. The Center for American Progress was supposed to be that. It's turned out they're a bunch of good folks, but like they're much more like establishment than I think their original mandate was. Yeah. And I don't know. There's there's room for something different here. Yeah. Before we finish, I think we should also note the moment is grim, but you have to let that energize you. You can't let that yeah, of course. defeat you. And that's that's the mission of this podcast, is to acknowledge the reality of the moment and, and then figure out ways of moving past that and, and navigating those difficulties. Yeah, I mean, there's also, like, there's something to be said for the, the Martin Luther King view of, like, even if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, I'd still plant this tree today, you know? Mm. There's something to be said that even when, like, the rational utility of, you know, making means meet ends, strategic thinking in that like calculated way, even if it looks like it can't work, like trying to do the right thing, trying to move the needle, you know, like that's part of living. That's part of actually practicing democracy, even in an oligarchy, mm -hmm. you know, it's one thing to be analytically fatalistic. It's another thing to be practically fatalistic. All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So for Ask Me Anything this week, the first question is from an anonymous think tanker. One of your peeps in Washington made a pitch to reimagine Korea as a maritime perimeter rather than a land-based threat. Do you think this is right? So this is very interesting. I don't know this woman, Grace Kim. Uh, she's like a younger Korea analyst that does kind of the hardcore military stuff. And she actually, this pitch competition was at CNAS, which is a think tank I'm affiliated with now. Um, and I just, I wasn't involved in the actual pitch competition, but she won the the pitch. And that was it, right? It's like the way we think about Korea from like American national security perspective is very much as like, it's a land-based threat oriented toward North Korea. Um, and we need to think of it more as like the front line of the first island chain. Like whenever we talk about maritime perimeters or the Chinese first island chain, we somehow always exclude Korea, just like we excluded Korea, Dean Acheson did when he drew his defense perimeter in um, 1950 and then you know, North Korea invades South Korea because it thinks that um, South Korea is not covered by the U.S. defense perimeter. So these these imaginaries matter because they shape opportunities for others. They shape um, how we think about and invest and make choices with regard to these countries. And so this imaginary about Korea, she's arguing, should be more maritime rather than continental, rather than land-based. It's a very interesting argument. Um it probably deserves more than just my like AMA reaction, but uh, I don't, I, I don't think that the way she's thinking about this works in the current environment and the way that it could work is something that she would probably be opposed to. Um, and I say that because she's like a hard national security person. 
And the only way that this logic could work in my mind is if North Korea becomes a strategic partner of the U.S. As long as North Korea is a kind of adversary, uh, there's just no way that South Korea is going to get on board with being part of a larger imaginary frontline adversary of fucking China. That's like, it's very um, yeah. unrealistic about South Korea. And the, the most unjust colonial kind of thing you could do is impose this kind of idea on South Korea when South Korea disagrees, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. So I think there's actually, it's a novel idea. In practice, it doesn't fit well with the circumstances. And the only way that it could fit well is if you get on board with North Korea and do like a Nixon goes to China thing, but with, with Pyongyang. But I don't see anybody talking about that. I don't mean like, I actually think there could be something it's, that's worth exploring, but nobody is there as far as I can tell. Um, so it's like very interesting idea, but for now, I don't know. Cool. The second question this week is from Ryan Marsden. You mentioned on the show previously that your parents are Trump fans. How do you deal with that? <laughs> this is kind of funny uh, and, and sad. So, yeah, my parents are Trump fans. I don't know if that's lasting. Like, they've been pretty, I, I think, I suspect they still are. But um, I also know that they're kind of disgusted with how the management of COVID-19 has gone. And so maybe the response to the pandemic is peeling off some of the MAGA people on the margins or like alienating them. But for the most part, I mean, like I actually, I just happened to say on Twitter today, like my Facebook feed of is a lot of it is people that I knew before I became this, like, especially before I was like openly political. And mm -hmm. so it's a bunch of people who are like middle-class that are historically apolitical, right? They're the kind of people who just like, want to like do their jobs and live their life and be left alone. And like, I don't know, some want to pay more taxes, some don't, but like, that's, that's sort of it, you know, like that centrist kind of liberal, uh, maybe a little conservative leaning, but like more or less down the middle, more and more of them are becoming active every day as if they are like right wing propagandists. They're, they're, oh, they're posting articles from fucking RT they're sharing gifs of Putin doing funny shit. They're reading off talking points that are produced by places like Breitbart, but they're not sharing the Breitbart article. They're just like saying the talking points. They defend Trump left and right, but they always start with the caveat. I'm, I'm not a big fan of a lot of the things he does, but and then they say something that defends him. And it's like. This is this is like all the time. They're the anti-maskers. They believe masks are is of slavery somehow. Um, it's fucking. It's all bonkers and it's all right-wing propaganda in the worst sense. And they're just spouting it. And it's like more and more of them. And they are not political people historically. Um, and they've been activated in the most dangerous of ways. So. Actually, this is all very askew of the question that was asked, but it's like <laughs> that is the, that is the context for this question. The answer is that I try my damnedest not to talk politics with my parents um, because yep. it would be a choice. Mm -hmm. Do I keep my parents 
or do I break from my parents because of politics? That's that is the choice that faces all of us with MAGA parents. And yeah. I am not ready to destroy a family dynamic because of fucking propaganda on Facebook. But I'm also not going to tolerate them coming at me with fucking propaganda. Like, fuck you. You know, that ain't happening. So the only solution is to compartmentalize and not engage them on this because it will never go anywhere good. And like, I'm sure people have different philosophies about it, but that's the only way that I can make this work and still consider them my parents. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic uh, to fund us and WPR.pub slash undiplomatic for our sponsor's newsletter, World Politics Review. Catch you next time. Peace.